0: That's heritageradionetwork.org slash 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you.
1: Restaurants employ over 15 million people nationwide. And two-thirds of all restaurants are independently owned and not part of big chains. Yet, currently, these small businesses are not represented in government relief negotiations. Roar is working to change that by fighting for relief opportunities for all restaurants. Roar is advocating for an eight-point plan in New York State that will allow restaurants to reopen and rehire when the time comes. Dozens of industry leaders have signed onto this plan, like Namwa Tea Parlor, Field Trip, Momofuku, and many more of your favorites. You can join them at change.org by searching for Roar, Relief opportunities for all restaurants.
2: I'm Alison Kane and welcome to In the Sauce, a podcast about building consumer brands from the ground up. I love doing this show because I get to interview everyone from production gurus to marketing and social media mavens. Anyone who can guide me on this crazy journey. This is the story of building Haven's Kitchen Sauces, but it's also the story of every growing brand because we're all in the sauce. Today, I'm speaking with Gabby Lewis and Greg Sevitz, the founders of Magic Spoon, the high protein, low carb cereal that has pretty much broken cereal, broken Instagram, and has addicted my teenage daughters as well as my mother. Gabby and Greg have been friends since college, and this is their second business together. I personally am very happy they're here for this first episode of In the Sauce, now that we are in this weird new world of quarantines and viruses. Um, And on that note, the sound might sound a little different for all of you listening. We're all, I think, in different states. Um, Matt is on from Rhode Island. I'm in New York. No, we're, I guess, only two different states. Um, So, we're going to talk a little bit about Magic Spoon, obviously, and talk about your, you know, what you guys wanted to be and all that. But I think what founders are really looking for is, you know, we've just entered a whole new world. Um, And you guys are experienced founders, you're experienced partners and entrepreneurs. Um, I'd love to get into sort of like how you're thinking strategically about everything from you know communicating with your team, making sure your supply chain is you know okay, investor relations, even forecasting and marketing and all that. Um, So welcome. And I wish that you know it was just a regular old episode in the studio and we could hug hello. Um, But I'm really glad you guys are here.
3: Thanks for having us.
2: All right. We're going to get this. We're going to get a good conversation going, even though we're all in different (laughs) places. Um, Okay. So you guys met in college. I know that. Um, I feel like this was sort of a match made in heaven. Gabby, why don't you tell me sort of your story? Uh, What did you think you were going to be doing? What were you doing in college? And how did you meet Greg?
3: Yeah, of course. So I was born in Israel. Grew up in Glasgow, Scotland, came to the U.S. about, yeah, came (laughs) to the U.S. about 10 years ago to study at Brown University, studied mathematical economics and philosophy, and met Greg during my freshman year. We became very close friends, we were roommates on and off, and when I graduated, I thought I was going to become an investment banker of some kind, perhaps. I, you know, I'd studied mathematical economics, my internships were sort of in the finance world. I was actually seriously considering joining a hedge fund called Bridgewater, which is one of the largest of hedge funds in the world Yes, <laughs> um, and has a, you know, a very interesting reputation and culture. Yep. And yep. instead of doing that, I ended up carving a very different path. And Greg and I started our first business together in our senior year at Brown University. And that was called ExoProtein.
2: And um, just, I'm trying to picture you as like a nine-year-old, were you like the kind of kid who wore a tie and carried a briefcase very early on because you thought you wanted to be in finance or were you the kind of kid who just wanted to be like a a business guy and like, what was your vibe when you were in fourth or fifth grade? (laughs) (laughs)
3: <laughs> well, you know, I was literally wearing a tie and a blazer because in Scotland we had to. So okay. to, to school every day. I they actually made us wear like shorts, even in the yes, freezing I've seen winter. That. So it was like tweed shorts, a blazer. Like culottes, a tie, kind of I
4: feel. Yeah.
3: Yeah. And a flat cap. Like Cute and this look. was fairly recent. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, so that was what I was actually wearing, but I, I, you know, I wasn't desperate to go into finance. I think the difference, or one of the differences growing up in the UK is at least a decade ago, entrepreneurship wasn't really admired or idolized there like it you know, has come to be here. And so right. for somebody who was you know, doing pretty well in school and like, wanted to go to university, the idea of starting your own business or launching a startup in food yeah. or any other industry, wasn't really something people spoke about. So right. when I was, you know, nine or even seventeen, that wasn't really an option in my
2: an mind. An option, and it wasn't yep. until
3: yeah, it wasn't until I came to the U.S. and became sort of immersed in quite a different culture that I even right. realized that was on the table.
2: Greg, what did you make of Gabby when you first met him, and what was your road to uh, entrepreneurship?
4: Um. <laughs> well, I mean, all I knew about Gabby when we started at school was just that he was from Scotland, um, and we happened to live fairly close together in the dorms freshman year at mm-hmm. Brown. Um, I think it's like seventy percent of the freshman class lives in one interconnected building, essentially, and so that's how we initially met and in kind of our our core group of friends who still sort of our core group of friends all lived within this same building. Um, And so over the years, we kind of just lived together on and off. Um, I uh, studied cognitive neuroscience and Uh English. (laughs) So um, I was most likely going to go into neuroscience in some way, um, probably like in the research um,
2: side of things. So not necessarily an extrovert?
4: Uh, I, I mean, there, there's a lot of, you have to do a lot of talking because it's mostly like human subjects um, that right. you're doing experiments on. But um, I don't know, I you know, I hadn't really figured out what I was right. going to do. I didn't have like a really strong life plan, like going to medical school or something. Um, right. But we started Exo right after college, um, just sort of almost by accident, we, we We didn't really know what we were getting ourselves into fully at at the very beginning Um, and it snowballed into being a real company. And then after that, I think, you know, after that experience, we, we had such a strong network. We had already run a company in the food industry for a few years. Um, We felt really confident about what we were doing from an execution perspective. Um, And so Magic Spoon was a lot easier to kind of get right. off the ground and conceptualize because um, at that point we kind of knew exactly what we wanted to do.
2: And let's let's go back to EXO a little bit. So EXO was protein bars made with cricket protein. Is that right? Correct. And um, the two of you guys basically graduated from college, raised a little bit of money... Got some traction, then raised some more money, um, and and then it was time to do something different, basically. Or you know, how did how did you go from XO to Magic Spoon?
3: Yeah, so we launched it in our senior year at Brown University, mm-hmm. um, or rather, we started working on it during our senior year and launched it. We... Right. And we did a Kickstarter campaign the summer after we graduated. At that point, we weren't really taking it very seriously. And everybody else certainly wasn't taking it very seriously. You know, (laughs) insect protein is is weird to most people today. It was a million times weirder to most people back then in 2013. There was really nobody doing anything in that space beyond a few articles that come out and the UN report that became quite popular. And so in many ways, we were the first people to actually try and convince Americans to consume insect protein and normalize that as a food source. And it wasn't until we did that Kickstarter and got some press over that summer, we were in Forbes, the New York Times, and some other places that wow. a few people started to take it somewhat seriously. And we were right. able to raise some, some financing at that point. And we ended up running that business for about five years, and we raised right. a few million dollars in investment from a bunch of different people, ranging from angels like Tim Ferris to more mm-hmm. traditional venture capital funds and all sorts of investors in between. And then about a year and a half ago, we sold the brand to one of our suppliers, actually. Great. Right. Yeah. Um, they <laughs> were looking to vertically integrate. Um, and so the partnership just made sense from everyone's perspective. And... We wanted to stay in the food industry, and we, in many ways, wanted to swing in the complete opposite direction. So,
2: right, I've read a really interesting, I don't know which one of you said it, but basically, you went from like a very niche space to kind of this ultra massive mainstream category, but that hadn't seen innovation. Like, exo cricket protein bars are almost the opposite of, you know fun-friendly cereal. Um, was that intentional? I mean, were you guys thinking, did you have the idea for Magic Spoon and then kind of applied everything that you would learn from EXO to it? Or did you kind of sell EXO and you were like, okay, we love each other. We love this industry. We want to stay together. Let's think of something else we want to do and kind of make a little mind map and then pick something out of a group. How did... You know, how did that go? Um, it was,
4: uh, I would say, like, half bottom up, half top down. Like, we mm-hmm. we knew that we wanted to launch another food brand, um, and we knew that given what our sort of competitive advantage had been at EXO around um, a lot of the health and wellness influencers, it obviously yeah. made sense to try and do something that could... Yeah. Um, also have a leg up from that point of view as well. So those, you know that that was sort of like um, that was our condition as we were thinking through different opportunities. But on the other hand, we had always um, both been big cereal eaters, mm-hmm. and always like at least for me personally, when I was growing up, we had like ten different um, cereals always in the house at any one time. Uh, Can I just ask you guys
2: completely off topic, I guess? Like (laughs) for me, it was Lucky Charms. Like for me, Lucky Charms was like made me happy. And still to this day, like you put a bowl in front of me and I have like nostalgic, warm hearted feelings. What was your go to cereal?
4: for me uh, captain crunch and golden grams probably okay
2: i'm totally with you on captain crunch except that they hurt the top of my mouth at yeah when they're I was, a little yeah, scratchy yeah and gabby was it like something irish scottish <laughs> scottish <laughs> Well, no, something Irish to uh, the UK. I well, uh, sorry, well, that breeze
3: past like the Irish. <laughs> um,
2: <laughs> was it oats? Um,
3: we, we no. I mean, we actually have very similar cereals in Scotland. They've just sometimes got slightly different brand names, right. and so for me, it I was it was Frosties, you know, Frosted Flakes, right. or Cocoa Pops, Cocoa Puffs. I loved anything chocolatey.
2: I love that. I'm so sorry to the entire United Kingdom for I, 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 It's okay. I mean, it happens. I'm from New York City, like Manhattan, and I do it with everything. Like I, it's just I have like a very like Manhattan-centric brain and it is not my best asset. So, apologies. Scott. That's all right. I accept your um, apology
3: on behalf of, all of the Thank you. On behalf
2: of the Scottish people. Um, <laughs> so let's talk a little bit about so, you know, what were some, I mean, if I, if I were thinking about this and I was doing a second thing, obviously you guys had a great partnership because you were willing to do it again together. Um, so that was kind of like check, right? And then were did you have some sort of like non-negotiables or like any, again, going back to sort of a mind map of like what you wanted, your R&D process to look like and and what was a problem with EXO that you didn't want to have again with um, Magic Spoon? Was there, you know, okay, we we don't, yeah. To
4: be honest, we didn't, um, it wasn't like we ran R&D processes on multiple different ideas and then kind of like chose what to do. I mean, high level, we were kind of thinking about a few different things. but really like none of them ever got past the idea point and magic spoon. We kind of decided to go all in on, um, from the beginning, essentially it was kind of the only thing we really worked on. Um, Mm -hmm. and that's because we, once we figured out that there was this big hole in the market, we felt that nobody was tackling that felt obvious to us. Um, and two, that we could actually make a product that filled the hole in a way that we thought would be satisfying. So mm-hmm. that was actually a part that took a while um, to just find co-packers and stuff that could make yep. um, a high-protein, grain-free cereal-like product. Um, yep. But once once we sort of checked that box, then we we were just so excited about the idea because... Like, business proposition aside, like, if you to, if I had to choose one type of food product to run from, like, a brand <laughs> and marketing perspective, yeah. a cereal brand, like, obviously just see, is going to be the most fun thing that you totally. could choose in the grocery store. So yes. from that point of view, like, we were fully on board. It was sort of like, you know, our first choice, quote-unquote, but also we just saw this huge category that was super sleepy. You know, all yeah. of the main CBG incumbents are in it, but... There's really no startups, really, besides, like, Kashi and Barbara's, which aren't really startups anymore. Yeah, they're a
2: little bit older now, right? (laughs) Yeah. Um,
4: And it's, you know, a $10, $11 billion category. Um, Every single person in the country pretty much probably has a box of cereal in their house. Yeah. And it just felt like it had been sort of oddly overlooked, Uh, And, you know, we uh, Exo is mostly e-commerce, and cereal, obviously, it's not fresh or frozen, so it lends itself well to e-commerce. And that was another consideration for us, just because that is sort of what we had...
2: What you know. That's
4: what we knew, yeah.
2: Yeah. I was going to ask you about that, because I feel like, you know, second time around, you get this opportunity to kind of reflect on what could have been better, about the first time around, you know, like, we don't want to bootstrap this, we want to raise money right away, or we need to make sure that our gross margins are, you know, they're not this, they're this, because this is like what really got us, you know, into a good position. Like, were there a couple of sort of, um, like, pieces of scaffolding that you put around this before you even Kind of went forward like that you were like this this has to be something that's different from our previous experience or this is something we want to make even bigger from our previous experience
3: yeah totally and i think that's actually related to your question of the conditions for selecting an idea yep. know, greg greg mentioned that cereal was a category was a little bit overlooked and i think last time we were operating in a market that was very small but very overhyped So the idea of Cricket Protein got tons of press and attention, but ultimately, it was a very small market that we were building from scratch. Yeah, Yeah. um, totally. Whereas this time around, cereal is kind of the opposite. It's a huge market, but very underhyped. Especially a year ago, if we would say casually to a traditional CPG investor that we wanted to start a cereal company, their response would be to laugh and say cereal is dead. Nobody wants that anymore. Right. Um, And so we wanted to find something that was not only a huge category, but a huge category that everyone else thought wasn't sexy and nobody else was about to dive into. Um, And when we heard people say cereal's dead, what we heard was, well, it's actually like a huge category everybody loves, but people think it's dead, and it's only dead because no product in the market right now speaks to the modern consumer. So if we can figure out a way to revive it and speak to today's consumer then that can be huge. And because it's overlooked, there's going to be less competition. And so that was all yep. sort of tied up in one of our conditions of large market that's actually under hyped.
2: Yeah, I mean, it's, it's super smart. So what I had planned was, because we, um, you know, Haven's Kitchen, we are not a direct-to-consumer brand in any way. You know, it's, a, it's like, I think we sell like, you know, 16 pouches of sauce a month, online <laughs> like everything else is like store heavy um so obviously it's very different i mean you guys are from what i understand d2c exclusively for now unless are you in stores yet or just d2c 100
3: percent direct to consumer yep
2: right um, so I don't know about things like CAC and lifetime value and, you know, things like that. So what I was going to do before the, uh, you know, pandemic, I guess, was sort of go through for people who are kind of starting um, or founders who are in d to c sort of some of the things that are like key indicators. You know, I don't know what your gross margins need to look like compared to what mine do or, you know, lifetime value, how you calculate that um, or the ratio between that and CAC or all of that. But now that we are in this new situation, I think we're going to try to go through some of those questions, but thinking about them in the new reality that is 2020. Um, So I'm going to ask questions, I guess, about new strategy and thinking about, you know, obviously direct to consumer every every food product right now, I would imagine is getting a huge bump right now, but there are things to consider differently when you're direct than there are when you're on supermarket shelves and even if you do have a huge bump, how to kind of plan for when things settle down again um, so maybe you'll when you talk when you kind of answer those questions, if you can sort of assume that if you use a um, you know, if, if you use like an abbreviation for something or you use an acronym for something, just kind of explain it, um, that'd be really helpful. Does that sound Yeah, cool? of course. Okay. Yeah. So I think what we're going to do is take a quick break and then we're going to come back and we're going to talk about uh, Brave New 2020. And we'll be right back.
5: The James Beard Foundation is a nonprofit with the mission to celebrate, nurture, and honor chefs and other leaders, making America's food culture more delicious, diverse, and sustainable for everyone. And right now, it's working to respond to the dire situation the food and beverage community is in due to the COVID-19 pandemic. Restaurants, bars, and other independent food and beverage operations are often on the front lines of community revival. The majority of culinary community businesses have less than 500 employees. But collectively, this industry generates $1 trillion a year, 60% of which is pumped back into their local business communities. To help bring swift economic relief to these essential businesses, the James Beard Foundation launched a fund to provide microgrants to independent food and beverage businesses in need. You can donate at jamesbeard.org relief.
2: Hi, I'm back with Gabby and Greg from Magic Spoon. Okay. So 2020, Um, let's just talk really quickly. You know, we all had a strategy. We all had a forecast. Um, Did you guys just look at yours and make a new one or how are you adjusting? How are you thinking about what's going on now in 2020 and what's going to happen sort of beyond that? What has it accelerated for you? What has it put on pause? Greg, why don't you start?
4: Um, to be honest we're sort of still assessing um, we are mostly just maintaining our current plan for now um, and just kind of responding day by day we you know we made a big donation of cereal to some local organizations in New York we sort of sent out an email just uh, informing our customers that like we were sort of putting in place checks in our supply chain and that kind of thing but other than that um, for now we're just continuing on because we're entirely e-commerce. It's the feedback loop is really tight, obviously. So right. um, we know when things are going up, when things are going down, and can sort of like tweak our advertising strategies, our email and social strategies, like day by day. Um, right. So we haven't really made any different long-term decisions besides maybe slightly increasing our production runs to like hold slightly more inventory. Um, But even that and talking with our suppliers for now, they don't project any um, shutdown because um, food manufacturers are deemed essential um, pretty much everywhere. So uh, luckily, you know, all of us in the food business don't really have to worry about complete supply chain shutdowns. Obviously, I think like workers calling in sick and that kind of thing are a concern everywhere. Um, So I expect things to be slow and maybe slightly more complicated but we haven't really changed any of our forecasts or anything like that.
2: And in terms of, you know, if you were sort of mentoring a new founder, um, what what would you say to them? You know, we'll talk about sort of investor relations in a minute, but what would you, how would you advise them on like supply chain relations? Like how what would you sort of tell them are the things they should be asking of co-packers and maybe the things that they should be telling co-packers?
4: Um, I would say email all your suppliers, ask them for updated lead times, ask them if any of the raw materials that they rely on for your products are coming from outside the country. Um, and I would ask them if they've been cross-training their employees um, what the plan is if somebody does test positive for coronavirus, um, whether they you know just confirm that they are deemed essential, uh, and just sort of pressure test how much they have written down and how much they've thought through different scenarios um, of people getting sick or supply chains being disrupted. And if you mm-hmm. get the sense that it... Is sort of out of their control or out of your control? It's or if, if it seems like there's a question mark as to how responsive they're going to be or whether they might actually have supply chain disruptions, then you know I think probably um, adding padding to your buying in the short term is probably a smart idea if it's a critical ingredient. Um, right. But a lot of, I mean, for food. Actually, too, it seems somewhat rare to be sourcing that many ingredients um, globally because right.
2: you, yeah, I you, think know, you can be more get packaging. most things
4: here and yeah. usually it ultimately yeah. is still cheaper to buy stuff here. Um, yeah. So as opposed to like you know physical tech products where it's probably all coming from Asia, I think right. we're less affected um, in the food industry.
2: That's Actually, those were like all really nice things tight little points. (laughs) And then in terms of um, communicating with your team, I'm assuming everyone's working remotely. Um, You know, do you have any sort of tips for team morale or connectivity or, you know, for me, I'm an over-communicator to begin with. It's an asset and a liability. Um, I think that in times like this, you really need to be communicating as much as possible with everyone, but I'm always a little bit, you know, I also want to be sort of in a position where people know that I'm okay and that things are going to be fine. And, you know, you kind of want to balance this sort of optimism with, you know, also acknowledging that people are freaking out and, you know, freaking out. So how are you sort of implementing? You know, work from home, team morale are you doing anything that you're especially sort of like proud about or psyched about with your team um, just to keep things up?
3: Yeah, so there's a few things we've put into place the past few days. Firstly, I'd say we're like ten days into this, so. By right. no means would say that we've <laughs> solved how to efficiently work from home while keeping everybody's morale very high. Yes. But there's I a mean, few things I, we feel, were doing I feel that, bad yeah.
2: that you guys are, I mean, again, you're the first no, I'm in interviewing yeah. in this like, new yeah. world. So it does feel like I am happy that it's you guys because you have, even though the company isn't that old, you guys have been a team for a long time and you've mm-hmm. learned some lessons along the way. So, yeah, I'm not expecting you to write the book on, you know, work from home team <laughs> morale. But, you know, any cool. any advice yeah. that you can give is always helpful. And if someone, I yeah, think that's course. my Slack that is making that little noise in the background. So, sorry, everybody. Okay.
3: <laughs> yeah, so a few things. Um, first thing we're doing is 10 o'clock every single morning, we have a five-minute video call with the entire team.
2: No agenda, because the
3: only Uh, purpose is for everyone to say hi. So it's literally just like we're starting our day together. We see everyone's face. We like cheers our coffee cups and we start our Uh day. And that's been really nice for everyone to have like that ritual at the top of the morning. um, And just like know we're all sort of being productive. We're all here if like anyone needs us. Um, And so we find that to be like a really nice way for everyone to start their work day. And Mm -hmm. it's basically obviously a stand-in for everyone like walking in the door and asking how everyone's night was the night before. So we started doing that. That's been helpful. Um, Again, like we're not trying to get any work done during that time. It's purely to say hi on Zoom. Yeah, right, right. And then we're basically upping any one-on-ones we have with any of our team members. So if I have like a once once a week one-on-one with someone, now that's two or three times a week. And that's being applied to basically every different team in our company. We have um, team-wide stand-ups a couple of times a week, where we all (laughs) on Monday talk about our goals for the week, Friday we reflect on the prior week. I mean, it's a lot of things, honestly, that larger companies probably have in place anyway. But for us, because we're a small company and we're all like running around and we all always know what everyone else is doing because we're in the same office. A lot of these formal systems we just never put in place because we didn't need to, but now we do need to. So a lot of it is just doing things that probably a lot of companies do, even if they're not remote. But for us, the need is becoming clear when we're not like physically around each other every day.
2: Gabby, do you, like, how do you guys, I haven't asked you this, but was it a natural sort of division of labor between you and Greg early on? You know, I'm the finance and the ops guy, I'm um, the sales and marketing guy, or how did you guys, has that shifted at all? And, and do you have, I mean, I'm assuming you have pretty clear division of labor, even though you're co-founders. Yes?
3: Yeah. So we're actually probably not ideal co-founders from the perspective that we have very overlapping skills. So mm-hmm. it's not as if like, I'm the marketing visionary and Greg is like the, like the pure ops guy. We're both right. kind of similar personalities. We like doing similar things. Um, I think in many ways that's why we work so well together, though. So the way we've ended up dividing it, both at EXO and Magic Spoon, is very broadly I do sales, marketing, fundraising, and Greg does product, operations, finance, and legal. And then we share brand because that's the most fun piece, mm-hmm. and neither of us was yeah. willing to give that away.
2: <laughs> yeah, and it ties into everything, right? I mean, 100%. You're not going to make a a serial that works perfectly from an operations perspective, but doesn't like fit the fit the brand. So that makes sense. Of course. Um, okay, so Greg, what are your one-on-ones looking like with the people on your team these days?
4: Um, we we basically try and institute the same processes um, across the whole company. So, like Gabby mentioned, we have the check-ins in the morning. Um, I have a daily check-in. With our director of ops, um, we both have check-ins um, with some sort of outsourced contractors we work with. So mm-hmm. it's sort of just more regular calendar holds, I think, um, right. that often don't last the whole time, but just kind right. of serve as um, habit-forming uh, and, and sort of a place to just raise any questions. So everyone kind of knows, like, rather than just slacking continuous questions, it right. almost sort of gets more you know, you hold your questions to the daily check-in when you can kind of just, like, knock them all out. Um, That's sort of what we found to be working so far. But again, yeah, it's sort of so early in the process. I'm not quite sure yet what, you know, if more will be needed, if less will be needed, so.
2: And so the next group of people that I want to sort of talk about managing and communicating with are investors. Um, So I know that you guys, you know, did not bootstrap this one you kind of you had i mean explain to me sort of your thinking around fundraising when you decided to start magic spoon like what were what were the steps that you guys took and how did the money kind of happen
4: we basically <laughs> it's, it's it's funny it's like gabby and i are trying to like hear which one of us is going to respond
2: um, and no, and Matt always says, like, when you're interviewing two people, you should be like, and Greg, tell me about this. And what about you? And so I tried a little. You could hear me yeah. being like, Gabby, what do you, but sorry, I didn't on that one. Greg, tell me a little bit about, you know.
4: To Gabby's point, though, you know, we can, we both can basically talk to everything. everything so right. it, it, <laughs> uh, it's sort of just like a handoff. But basically, um, we had a few investors at EXO that we really loved. Um, uh, and, sort of like even many months later we're still kind of in close contact with and we'd sort of been kicking around a couple of different ideas um and once we kind of knew we were doubling down on magic spoon we essentially just got them on the phone um and walked them through what we were thinking what the product was going to be like our vision for the brand um and we raised uh, about a million dollars, um, just sort of like on a quick safe note, um, right. and that's what allowed us to really get everything off the ground. And uh, that you know fully got us through launch. I think we probably raised it in the like maybe no the fall of twenty eighteen, mm-hmm. um, maybe earlier the summer of twenty eighteen, something like that. And then we launched. Um, we launched the business beginning of April, uh, 2019. Um, and then after launch over that summer of 2019, we raised, um, a seed round, um, to kind of like help fuel the scaling of the business.
2: A good chunk more. And going back to, so, you know, again, for me, launching meant, Hey everyone, we're on this, you know, the shelves at Whole Foods, you can get us now and we're going to do lots of demos. Launching on, you know, D2C, you know, I mean, I know that you sold a lot. You did XO a lot D2C, you know, to begin with. But how did you even, you know, for people who are thinking about launching D2C, like what are sort of the, you know, do you just go and start buying Instagram ads? Like how, you know, how do you think about, spending your money marketing on i guess let's talk about cost of acquisition let's let's make it simple talk about you know how to acquire consumers when there's a brand new product they've never heard of it they you know how do you even know where to start
3: yeah so i think a good way to think about it conceptually is just like it's actually not that different to selling in retail but rather than paying a margin to Whole Foods or Target or whoever your partner might be, you're just paying Facebook or Google or some other online company. Mm-hmm. So like you can think of like the Instagram feed as just an aisle in the grocery store. And rather than paying mm-hmm. rent to Whole Foods, you're paying rent to Instagram. So I think conceptually mm-hmm. it's kind of similar. So in the same way that yeah. if you're launching into retail, you're going to decide, all right, my first two partners are going to be Whole Foods and Wegmans, for example. If you're launching online, you're going to decide, okay, my first two channels are going to be Instagram and, like, Google search or podcasts or whatever it might be. Um, Mm -hmm. And the the early days, it's really just about testing as many channels as you can quickly and efficiently and then deciding what's working and doubling down. Again, like, similar to how you might if you're doing a test of the natural channel versus conventional versus some other channel of, like, physical distribution. So for us, that meant buying Instagram ads. It meant testing on a few podcasts running some paid search to like certain keywords that are both branded, meaning like if someone reads about us in press and then searches the words magic spoon, but also right. unbranded, meaning if someone Googles healthy breakfast or keto recipe, right. for Keto's example.
2: cereal or something, right.
3: Exactly. And then layered right. on top of those sort of performance-based marketing initiatives, we did a big PR push around launch, which generally um, is for us sort of less about the direct sales you get for it And more about all of the tertiary benefits. Um, And so for us, it was, yeah, mostly influencers, paid ads, and then press. And that was how we launched in April of 2019.
2: Yeah, you know, I had um, – there's a whole interesting story about your PR team reaching out to me. And then when you guys couldn't come on, Sarah from your PR team basically offered up Melissa from your PR team – as like my replacement guest who I then ended up hiring like the next week because I liked her so much in the podcast. Super weird story. Sarah, this one is for you. So she's totally, but, you know, I was always sort of like rant about PR. Um, But I think it's interesting because I do think that even though, you know, especially with us, you know, we can, it's very hard for us to measure anything other than a demo where someone is like, okay, I will buy two of these. And even then they could just drop one off on their way to the checkout. You know, we don't know. So it's, it's, it's easier for you guys to measure what works, I would think direct to consumer. Um, but I do think that that general sort of, you know, just getting the name out there, getting the branding out there, you know, there might not necessarily be like a surge in purchases online when you guys are quoted in Forbes. Um, But it's just that it's like that sort of becoming part of the lexicon a little bit, you know? Um, Yeah. yeah. There's
3: tons of benefits. I mean, you're right that by and large getting a quote in Forbes isn't going to result in a surge in sales, but I would say probably one in every 10 articles does surprise us and generate meaningful Mm -hmm. sales. And then once you layer on the benefits of, for example, using a Forbes quote in an Instagram ad and the return on ad spend increases by 20%, let's say, when you use a prestigious quote from a prestigious magazine in the ad itself, then PR quickly pays for itself. And then there's the added benefits in recruiting and in fundraising and all these other different parts of the business, so... For us, definitely worth it, even though 90% of it might not be trackable in terms of sales.
2: That makes total sense. And then, so how, I mean, so basically going back to that sort of like cost of acquisition, is it getting more expensive as time goes on? Is it getting more expensive right now because of just everyone trying to sell directly? Like what's kind of the general state of the state with cost of acquiring a consumer online and do you have any sort of ways that you're thinking about it or you know thoughts about that
3: so I'd say in general when you launch it's going to be cheaper than three months later which is going to be cheaper than six months later
2: so does it just keep getting more expensive or does it plateau at some point
3: so this is specifically for like paid social, meaning like Instagram ads, Facebook ads, generally the broader you go, the more expensive it's going to get. So you're going to saturate audiences. So for a brand that's like a protein shake, for example, at the beginning, they're going to target the most obvious people who are like bodybuilders and workout fanatics. And they're going to be able to get impressions fairly cheap and people are going to be more likely to click when they're from those audiences. But there's a finite number of those people they can show an ad to. And so when they go broader, it's just going to get more expensive by virtue of the audience being less likely to purchase. So generally, for most brands, it just gets more expensive as they scale on paid social. Um, now, you can like counteract that a little bit because you're also learning about what types of creative assets and copy work well. So if you're mm-hmm. good enough at that, then maybe that can like stop the increase in cost of acquisition from rising as drastically and then obviously the more mainstream your product is, the less this will really apply. So if you have something super niche, then right. you're going to saturate your obvious audience far sooner than if you have something very, very mainstream.
2: And how important so. is like growing that organic, you know, I feel like a few years ago, you know, I've said this before on the podcast, like it was, it was easier to get to a hundred thousand Instagram followers organically and naturally in the old days than it is now. Um, how important is it to you guys to have that organic growth are they are they your key customers are they the ones that kind of keep buying is there a way for you to tell that you know like cuz there's a difference obviously right between like the paid you know the paid social and the organic social right
3: a little bit i mean honestly i don't see it as binary as that like mm-hmm. it it's a spectrum from you know, if we pay a PR agency and someone reads an article and then like comes to our site, are they organic or, or was that paid? Right. Or if, right. you know, we, we send product to an influencer, but we don't pay the influencer and they post it and someone buys. Is that any right. different from someone seeing their friend who posted it, who, who purchased it? Like it's it's sort of a right. spectrum. You're right in that there there are better and worse quality customers and where you acquire right. those customers some degree can help you understand how good of a customer they're going to be. So like generally somebody hearing about us on a podcast, for example, might be a better quality customer than someone who comes through a Facebook ad, but they're both paid channels. Neither are really organic. Um, So there are definitely different quality customers from different sources, but we don't value like quote unquote organic because I'm not really even sure how we would define that in a meaningful way.
2: Right. And then Gabby, can you just also sort of talk about that lifetime value of a customer and sort of the ratio between how much it, if the cost keeps going up to acquire that customer at some point, the ratio is not in your favor, right? Between sort of like the lifetime value of that consumer and how much you've paid to acquire them. So is there, is there sort of a formula that you guys have to like, okay, now it's getting too expensive on this channel. We've sort of saturated. They're only gonna spend this amount probably over the course of you know however long they buy the cereal. Like, is, is that how you think about it? Or am I just? In- yeah,
3: I, I think it's very different for each company. Um, so generally, you're right. You've got your cost of acquisition. Most online companies will be comfortable losing a bit of money early on because they know that a customer is gonna buy two, three, four times and they know that over the lifetime of that customer they're going to make more money back. So let's say for example, they know they're going to make, you know, $80 from that customer over time even though the first purchase they're only getting $40. They might be right. comfortable spending $50 today, losing $10 up front, but they know that over time they're going to make the 30. So that's like right. the general sort of way that some companies will think about it. That's getting harder and harder and When you're an early company, you don't really have the data to make those decisions from. Um,
2: Mm -hmm.
3: And like you sort of alluded to a minute ago, different customers have very different behaviors, not only up front, but in their lifetime behaviors. So it's very difficult to figure out, for example, if we sponsor a podcast and it gives us 500 customers, we don't know whether they're, at first, we don't know whether they're families who are like buying cereal for four people. And they'll have a very different lifetime value than an individual So I think in an ideal world, people aren't thinking about lifetime value. People are trying to be profitable on that first purchase. On that first Um, purchase, right. Correct. It gets to a point for some companies when they're trying to grow to a certain extent where that just isn't possible to keep on growing while being first purchase profitable. And then you start trying to grow being lifetime profitable. But then again, if we're talking about $80 being the lifetime value for a hypothetical company, there also becomes a point where you're no longer lifetime profitable either, and then you're really right. in trouble. Um, and then you're
2: really. And in in another so way, I can tell you that my mother in Boca Raton, Florida, <laughs> I just like to. I think she's ordered. Uh, you guys could look it up. Probably like seventy-two boxes of Magic Spoon because she likes to find something she likes and then just order a lot of it. So, I don't know how you would calculate her. She's probably good for the next several years, but just in case, she was probably, (laughs) she was definitely first order profitable, I would say, then some, but I don't know that she has the longest. um, I mean, she should live for a very long time, but she ordered so (laughs) much in her first order. (laughs) (laughs) She ordered so much in her first order that I think she's like, I think she's good for some time, but (laughs) uh, I'm just trying to think how you measure that. How do you know how, how do you know how many, you just kind of have to guess how many times you think someone's likely to order, because I'm sure there are a lot of people that order something once and never order it again, even if they really like it, they just kind of forget or they move on to the next thing or they try a new diet or, right. So how do you even, how do you even guesstimate that? Is there just... There's just data out there. It's hard. Can... I
3: mean, you're you're looking at you're looking at averages amongst different groups coming in both at different times and for different sources. So right. customers that are required like when we launched back in April, might be higher quality customers than those that were acquired four months later, because the earlier ones are like sort of you know trendsetters who hear about things early, they're more likely to stick to these things. And then time plays a factor, but also the source that you acquire them from. So whether they come in through podcast or whatever um, gives us different assumptions, but ultimately you just don't know. And where a lot of direct to consumer companies get themselves into trouble is when they make Mm -hmm. wrong assumptions here. Um, And so that can really come back to bite you if you think your LTV is longer than it is.
2: I guess that's sort of my next question for you guys, you know, 2020 coronavirus or not, you know, what would you say if you were, again, if you were mentoring a founder right now, what would you say like, this is really important that you keep your eye on this and don't be overly optimistic about this. And like, this is a mistake that you really don't want to make. You know, how would you help someone reverse engineer mistakes that you've seen either yourselves or other founders make? And Greg, why don't we start with you?
4: Um, I think it's very like, Running a straight retail business is just honestly like night and day different than what we're doing. So I wouldn't really be able to give Corona specific advice, if only because I think it's even more exacerbated now. Like the retail landscape is just, I think, it, it, it totally insane in a like different direction. Right. Um, and I think there's a lot of strategy there around like what retailers do you prioritize and how do you sort of like... You know, ration the demand and that kind of stuff. For us, we um, we are just obviously like heeding all of the general advice to keep an eye out for an economic downturn and making sure you, you have enough runway and that kind of stuff. Um, but other so than that, I mean, think, I.
2: So to be clear, like, how much cash, how many months of operating are you comfortable with in the bank?
4: I mean, the general wisdom is like obviously you should have twelve to eighteen months in the bank. I mean, I think eighteen months is like a nice to have. That's probably the figure like coming right off of a raise. I right. think if you have that on an ongoing basis, it probably means you have too much cash. You, right, you overraise, um, especially in any other time besides this one. Maybe now it's prudent, but um, right. in general, I think most people try for about twelve
2: months. Okay. Um, and any thing you wish you would have known, Greg, before you got into all of this at the tender age of 22? <laughs>
4: um, I think I, I wish I would have known the, uh, sort of counter incentives for traditional fundraising and the dynamics of the food industry under normal circumstances, I think like there's been so much money floating around that VCs needed places to invest but, because there mm-hmm. just literally weren't enough deals in yeah. software and tech. Um but ultimately the timeline for a successful venture exit of five to fifteen years, let's say, like with 10 being like really the normal cycle to get a many X return. Is just really not how the food industry works. I mean, it's like right. mostly slow build. It's mostly mom and pop people starting at their farmer mar- farmers market and kind of like going door to door. Then maybe, especially like five years ago, you get into your local Whole Foods region. Yep. You kind of build out from there, um,
2: yes. right? <laughs> and maybe
4: you know one out of a hundred you know gets acquired by like yeah. one of the big strategics for like hundred to 300 million in like a best case scenario right. um but even that is sort of for most venture capitalists like depending on how early they invest like you know not even a great outcome let's say yeah. so I think knowing like picking the if 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 you'd wanted to sort of raise money and build like a national brand I think knowing just how unlikely that is in the food yeah. industry would have been useful for me yeah. and or like you know uh, knowing it was unlikely that all oh, that's all well and good like I, I've really don't think that that needs to be the path everyone takes but right. i would just sort it of is have the path, built no exactly yeah. like i would know what you want before you build your business yeah. any certain way
2: yep no i think that's really good advice we talk about that a lot on here you know just if your plan is to look like rx bar you might want to just rethink your plan right um doesn't happen to everyone gabby what about you what do you wish you had known What's your sort of word to the wise?
3: I think the biggest realization, which probably took me too long to realize, is that no one thing really matters that much. I think early on, it's really easy to think like, oh, if I just get into this one retailer, everything's going to be amazing. Or, oh, if I just like land this New York Times article or get this influencer or this investor, then like they're going to transform my business. And... In reality, like, no one thing really matters that much at all. It's the perfect execution of hundreds of little things that's going to make or break your business. And so I think not worrying about whether any one thing comes to fruition or not, and just like moving forward, um, is, is pretty good advice that took me a while to realize. And I think thinking that any one thing could matter more than I actually could made me a bad negotiator in certain circumstances. Yeah. Made me like overvalue things and spend too long trying to make things happen. Yeah. But ultimately, like, no one thing just matters
2: that much. That's great advice. Greg, are you a little jealous of Gap? No, I'm kidding. <laughs> kidding. <laughs> it's hard to be funny when you're, you're on remote and you are <laughs> <or> on mute. <laughs> but anyway, tried to end it with a little levity. Um, you guys have been amazing. Thank you so much. Matt, thank you for engineering this with all of my sort of Luddite. I don't know how to use AirPods, and I've never been on Zencast or whatever, but you're doing it from Rhode Island, which I very much appreciate. No problem. Aw, thanks. Um, Gabby and Greg, thank you so much. Um, Everyone, go buy Magic Spoon. Again, my teenagers love it. My mother loves it a lot. Um, she actually thought she got like a handwritten note from one of you, which is really <laughs> so sweet. I, heard I have about not this. disabused her of that. She still believes it <laughs> in her heart. Um, and uh, Magic Spoon, you know, you can buy it online. You can buy it through Instagram, um, but it's great. And you guys have been amazing. For everyone listening, um, next week I'm actually going to have – Uh, A couple of folks from Propeller on to talk about sort of financial planning, thinking about, you know, how to sort of readjust your sales plan for the year, thinking about, you know, marketing spend and maybe um, just sort of adapting to this weird new world that we're in. Um, Until then, everyone just stay home, stay safe, stay healthy. And thanks for listening to In the Sauce.
5: As the news of coronavirus reverberates throughout the world, we at HRN are especially concerned about how coronavirus will impact our food system. We will use our platform to support the restaurant, agriculture, hospitality, and other food-related industries by maintaining our coverage and operations. As social distancing becomes the temporary norm, podcasts are more important than ever. There's never been a more crucial time to stay informed about the state of our food system and the ways that food connects our global community. We're sharing all of our COVID-19 coverage at heritageradionetwork.org COVID-19, from interviews with nonprofit leaders and journalists, to first-hand accounts from chefs and restaurant owners, to reports on how this crisis is affecting regional farms. Our team is working remotely from all over to keep Food Radio alive. HRN needs your support more than ever to keep sharing essential stories and resources with our listeners. Make a donation of any amount visit heritageradionetwork.org slash donate.